0: Hi, I'm taking a break over the next few weeks. Meanwhile, here's an episode you might have missed. So you'll know, I have some fantastic guests lined up in 2023, many that you've requested. Season's greetings and happy 2023 to all of y'all. Thank you for the messages, emails, support, and the reviews. You make the magic happen for all things Mm Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance and the ruthlessness. So join me. And together, we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tutor. This is Deb Hunter, and I am thrilled to have Nathan Amin as our guest today. He is a brilliant Tudor historian. How are you doing, Nathan?
1: I'm fine, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, freezing, freezing but otherwise, okay. I just can't wait to dig in, get started talking about the Tudors. But first, introduce yourself. You've had such a great career. Can you tell us a little about yourself?
1: Yeah, well, my name is Nathan, and I am originally from southwest Wales, the same place, in fact, as a certain Henry Tudor. I was born and brought up in Wales most of my life before I moved to York about eight years ago. York being one of the most famous medieval cities in England, and I've just recently moved to London. So I'm kind of following this Tudor path, if you want. I started writing books about eight to nine years ago, just really putting my own research down on paper. Once you start researching a lot of any subject, really, you do start to accumulate your own notes, and I suppose you have to find some outlet for that. Some people might do podcasts, some people might write a blog. I went down the book route, and I guess here we are, all these years later, sharing love with everybody.
0: Absolutely, and we're so glad you took that route. What exactly led to your interest in history? Now, it sounds like you've lived in some very historic places. Is that what led to it, or was it something else? Well, kind
1: of. I mean... I don't have as great a story as some other people who claim the bug got them when they were children and they went to a particular castle and they really connected with the subject they, they write about. That that wasn't really the case for myself. Where I was born and brought up, as I said earlier, South West Wales, the history in that area can be overwhelming. Whether we're talking Roman history, medieval history, even up to the present day, you know, Wales is a country littered with castles and historic homes. So so you're never really far away from the history growing up, but I can't say it was something that was really at the forefront of my mind as a child. I mean, that was mainly sports, to be honest. But during my mid-twenties, I started spending a lot more time just going out and about, really, and just visiting what was around my local area. The kind of things that I had just completely overlooked throughout my childhood. When you come from similar like guy, where I was born and brought up, which is quite a countryside area, when you're younger, in your teenage years, you kind of just want to get out. You want to get to the big cities. You're not really that bothered about this beautiful history and culture that's on your doorstep. But I think as you get older, you do start to perhaps take a closer look. And that's what happened with myself. It's just in my mid-twenties, I just started developing a really deep interest in these castles and the history of our people and our area around me. That's when it really started. It didn't take too long for me to come across the Tudors. We can't ever really overlook the Tudors. They are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. But really, I had two interests developing. I had an interest in Welsh history, and I had an interest in the Tudors. And before long, you come across a certain Henry Tudor, Henry the Seventh, that first of the Tudor kings, but also a Welshman born and bred. I effectively was able to merge two of my growing interests into one, which was the study and the interest of the Welsh Tudors. You could argue that at the time that that, that I was developing this interest, around about 2008, 2009, there wasn't really anybody else doing this kind of work out there. It, It was very much a niche subject. And I suppose very quickly I was able to build up a bit of a platform by looking into this Welsh history. And I'm glad to say that all these years later, I'm no longer on my own. It seems a lot of people do have a strong interest in the life and times of Henry VII. Well,
0: you just led the way then. Think of it that way. I wouldn't be
1: so bold to say that, but there certainly was not many people <laughs> discussing Henry Tudor and his Welshness back then, I, I know that. I al- often say I set up a page on Facebook Uh, The Henry Tudor Society to try and see who else was out there. Because it did feel like it was just me shouting into the wind about this Welsh background of Henry Tudor. And, you know, there are definitely thousands and thousands of people out there with exactly the same interest as I have. And it's been fantastic to see it grow over these last 10 years. You know, being able to even speak to you on a transatlantic podcast about this very subject.
0: It is amazing how the interest has grown. I used to think that I was the only person, of course, here I am in the American Southeast, but I thought I was the only person that had even heard of the Tudors. And now look at us. It's a global phenomenon, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I mean... In Wales itself, it's always been quite interesting. It's been quite a political thing in Wales, the subject of the English kings. For a lot of people who don't know the ins and outs of of British history, so to speak, Wales, we consider ourselves, in effect, the first and the last colony of the kings of England. We were conquered by the kings of England back in the 13th century. We have been a part of the Kingdom of England and then later, you know, the United Kingdom... ...through what occurred in the 13th century. So there is a certain feeling at times in Wales... ...that there is a a rejection of the kings of England. If you are interested in the English kings... ...then you're almost doing a disservice to your own Welsh background. You know, some people might take that to the extreme... ...and feel that you're being a traitor to your Welsh background... ...by paying any interest to the kings of England. And a lot of focus of that has been aimed over the years... At the Tudors. Uh, The Tudors are considered by some in Wales, at least historically, to have been these great traitors to Wales. The Welsh family that really brought Wales into England's bosom. So what you've got historically is people within Wales not interested in the Tudors. And then you have people in England not interested in anything to do with Wales. So Henry Tudor has kind of, you know, slipped in between the cracks here in that people in Wales weren't interested in him because he was a king of England, and people in England weren't necessarily paying much attention to him because of his Welsh background. That's changed a lot over the last decade. And again, you know, that, that interest is spreading far beyond Wales or England.
0: So this is a fairly recent phenomenon?
1: It, it does certainly seem that way. That There has been a lot of studying of Henry Tudor, Within Wales, in the Welsh language, in the past, you know, there certainly has been some work done on him, but on a popular level, he's very much the last really explored Tudor monarch we have. And now there does seem to be a good push within Wales, which comes with more knowledge and more background and more insight about Henry Tudor through books like I hope I've been producing, that's really making a lot of people in Wales now finally claim Henry Tudor as one of their own. You know, yes, he was a King of England, but he was somebody who was born and bred in the heart of Wales. And we are now starting to see a bit of a growing interest in him. For example, in Pembroke, the town of his birth, there is now a a statue that's been put up commemorating his birth there. That feels like that would have been unthinkable, perhaps even a generation ago. And there are moves now to hopefully get a visitor centre or a museum dedicated to Henry Henry in his hometown. You know, this interest in the Tudors is growing, and specifically the interest in his Welsh background within Wales. That definitely does feel like something new that's occurring.
0: One thing you've done, Nathan, is make Henry the Seventh seem very human. I know before, he almost seemed like this miserly person who was possibly withdrawn, and he just wasn't fleshed out. You have... Achieve that. And congratulations on that. How did you find that about him? How have you researched him to make him more realistic for us?
1: I mean, I think first things first. I mean, history is just simply not black or white. There's always been this way of the world where we try and put people into a very, very simplistic terms. Richard III, Some people think he's good. Some people think he's bad. It's far more complex than that. You know, these were living, breathing people. And just like we today, there will be very many different facets to our personalities. So, you know, if you come at it from just that level, first of all, then very quickly you have to push aside any preconceptions that these people were just one or the other. You're right. Henry VII has often been viewed as a dour Miserly king, you know, devoid of any warmth. A boring accountant king who presided over a boring reign. That's the image many people have of Henry VII. And it's a really unfair assessment based on the historical record. Once you start to look at the sources, you can start to build up a far bigger, wider picture of this man. In his later reign, did he descend into the grip of avarice? Completely, absolutely, Henry VII... Try to accumulate great riches, you know, to buttress his dynasty. But was he a miser? Absolutely not. And we know this by checking the historical record. We still have, you know, his chamber books. And these are the records of the money that he was spending. Henry VII brought in incredible sums of money into his exchequer. But by God, did he spend some money. We have got records of him spending outlandish figures on furs and clothes for his wife, jewels for his wife, presents for his children, the money he spent on gambling, playing cards. Misers don't gamble. (laughs) Gambling is considered by many to be one of the greatest splurges we can do. And Henry VII loved to gamble. One particular financial record that I love is that Henry VII often spent money trying to get hold of Welsh meat. And I like this idea of this man, a king in London. He'd been away from home, from his, from his homeland of Wales, since he was a child, and yet he still was sending money to try and get Welsh mead brought to him. Perhaps that was a drink that he had in his youth, and he remembered it, and he wanted to bring it to London, where he was now king, and he could get hold of anything he wanted. Henry VII built incredible palaces. You know, we have the records of that. We know that he had, had a state-of-the-art palace at Richmond, We know that he rebuilt the Lady Chapel at Westminster Abbey. Anyone listening to this who has been to Westminster Abbey and has seen the Henry VII Lady Chapel, you know, they've cast their eyes on one of the greatest medieval monuments in all of Europe. This is a king who is throwing away incredible sums of money. Now, from the Chronicles, and particularly from ambassador reports written by... Visiting French, Spanish, Italian emissaries, visiting the court of Henry VII, they've left their impressions of him in the historical record. And of Henry, we quickly build up a picture from their records of a man who was affable, gracious, regarded as being quick witted, insightful. To his family, he appears to be an affectionate man. We know through other chronicle records of the great love that he showed to his wife, Elizabeth of York, and she to him. So just by studying the actual historical records, you know, this Henry has always been there. Very few people have bothered to delve into the records and bring the man to the fore. A lot of historians, to this point, they have rather focused on his financial acumen. And what's happened is the man himself has been pushed to the side. And because this idea of Henry being a boring king has come down the generations, then people are finding it difficult to push aside their preconceptions. And hopefully I've done a little bit of work there to let people know that, you know, we are looking at a real man who reigned for 24 years. There's a lot to unpackage there. And we can do it just by studying the
0: records. A very good point. And I have to ask you, you mentioned his later reign. What do you believe his early reign was like?
1: There's this idea that, William Shakespeare was responsible for trying to portray Henry VII as being this great angel sent from above who would unite the warring houses of York and Lancaster and become a kind of, like, like a saviour. A saviour to save England from war. And most people think that this was just a creation of William Shakespeare writing over 100 years later. But I truly believe, by again studying the records, that when Henry became king at the age of 28, he tried his damnedest to be this figure in the middle who could bring together two warring factions. He tried to do that. You know, he married Elizabeth of York. He extended the hand of friendship to people who had been fighting against him at Bosworth Field. At the battle where he won his crown, he extended his hand across the field to try and get everybody on side. He was actually following the example of Edward IV, who had done this a generation earlier. When Edward IV first became king, he tried to be a friend of everybody. So, you know, Henry's early reign would have been this kind of mishmash of Yorks and Lancastrians trying to coexist. Now, the problem is, as my new book, Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, really examines, is what Henry wanted wasn't necessarily what everybody else wanted. There was a great push for peace during Henry's early reign, but there were still a small group of rebels who were causing problems. And that's really what has affected a lot of Henry's reign. The reason Henry later in his reign went after the money to try and secure the future of his dynasty comes down to rebels' and plots and conspiracies against him to try and bump him off the throne. The money aspect of Henry's reign is directly tied into him trying to secure his dynasty. So yes, early in Henry's reign, he was the great hope of England. That's how he portrayed himself. That's how enough people put their faith in him, hence how he became king. I mean, Henry VII should never have become king of England. He was an absolute nobody who was basically pushed onto the throne because too many people had issues with Richard III. Rightly or wrongly, Richard effectively lost the kingdom rather than Henry winning it. But enough people were willing to put their trust in him. And this brings us back to this concept of Henry being some boring figure. How does a man manage to get an army to follow him into battle without having some form of natural charisma? I just see the early reign of Henry as being one of promise one of hope. Unfortunately, it didn't quite go the way he expected it. But when it was all said and done 24 years later, he was able to pass that crown on to his son in the first peaceful transferal of power in 87 years. So you can argue, you know, the ends at the end justified everything.
0: That's what they say. So how long have you been researching Henry VII?
1: Pretty much the entire time I've been into this subject. So where are we now? It's not even a year anymore. 2022. Gosh, 12 years now, I think. Obviously, as time has gone by, I'm, I'm a lot more serious about my research now than I was in the beginning. Very much in the beginning, I'm the same as everybody listening. You're just trying to read everything and get your hands on. I'm very pleased the podcasts have come along, because that's made everything a lot easier for trying to learn and access to the history. But yeah, uh, probably 12 years now, which seems a long time but hopefully I'm just getting started.
0: Yeah, you fit a lot of information into 12 years, I have to tell you. And let's go back to your book. You mentioned Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders. How long did it take you to research and write that? I think
1: all in, that book took four years and it could take another four years easily. It's one of those great difficulties when we're trying to write these books. We just never have enough time to do You know, as much research as we possibly do. There has to come a point where you just have to almost wash your hands off the project. I know some people, they they can really get the work done in a year. You know, they can really get their heads down, get the research and get the books out. I'm actually quite a slow worker. I find it difficult to concentrate. I'm a bit bit hyperactive. I I get distracted very easily. So, So I probably do take longer than I could do if I was a bit more focused. But at some point, you just have to hold your hands up. Accept that you've brought it as far as you possibly can now. You know, you've always got a publisher on your back who wants the book. You've got people wanting, waiting for the book. You just have to get them out. Yeah, so, so Henry VII took four years. It should have taken less if I'd been more focused, but I could have done with a heck of a lot more time to really try and get even more research in because we're always finding stuff. There's always rabbit holes to go down and and chronicles to chase up. And one of the remarkable things about today is we can do a lot of the work from our homes. You know, a lot, of this, a lot of this content is now on the internet, you know, the chronicles we can get hold of, financial records. Very rarely do we have to go to the libraries to get hold of most of what we need. But even so, there's so much untapped research and sources in those libraries just waiting to be pulled out. Perhaps someone hasn't looked at a particular article or a particular source for eighty, ninety years it's all just there waiting. So I I do always wish I had more time.
0: In your defense, it is so easy to go down those rabbit holes. I understand that and I sympathize with you there because it is very easy to find something that just catches your eye for sometimes a week or longer and get distracted by that. So I completely understand.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the big problems is, is I mean, this book, Henry VII and the De Pretenders, it's in the title. My focus is on Henry VII and the De Pretenders. Now, there's a lot of other things happening that I really want to explore, or I come across a really interesting story or a particular figure, and you want to try and explain, you know, perhaps who they are or, or explore their story, but you can't, you know, you have to keep it locked into the theme of the book. You just can't put everything in. And I'm learning that a lot, you know, the more I write books. A lot of people need to understand that us authors, we are constrained a lot of the time by A, what the theme of the book is supposed to be, you know, where is the narrative going? And also, word count. Word count is is a terrible constraint on an author but from a business point of view, I do understand why publishers need to make sure their authors aren't turning in 3,000-page books that are the size of a table. But but it does mean you have to be quite ruthless in cutting things out that just take up space, that don't really, at the end of the day, add anything to the story you're telling. So that's, that's sometimes the most difficult part of writing these books, is being ruthless and getting rid of stuff that doesn't add to the book in the end. In my previous book, The House of Beaufort, a lot of people mentioned why did I finish at the moment of the last male Beaufort's death? Why did I end just when Margaret Beaufort was coming on the scene? And, I mean, there's two answers there, really. The first is, I ran out of space. I simply ran out of word count. I had no more words left. The book had come to an almost natural conclusion and I just didn't have any space left to tell that story and also it leaves a space to write another book doesn't it <laughs> it is one of those things that you always have to try and take into consideration but hopefully you know the, the narrative side of it you know you're, you're telling one story here, and hopefully it makes sense and, and that just means that then we all have to buy many many more books from many different authors to try and get as wide a picture as possible
0: Hey, I think we're down for that. No problem. Let's talk about the House of Beaufort for a minute. Wasn't that the first full-length biography of that family? It was, yeah.
1: I mean, the House of Beaufort was an interesting project because I kind of started but by accident. I didn't go out planning to create a biography of the House of Beaufort. I just wanted to learn more about the Beauforts. You know, I wanted to research them and, and, and read a book that tells me all about... Henry VII's maternal ancestors. It turns out there simply wasn't that book out there. I searched high and low for a book on the Beauforts. I never found one. They've always been the supporting actors in other people's stories. If we read a book about Henry IV, the Beauforts are in the background. Richard of York, the Beauforts are in the background. The Tudors, the Beauforts are in the background. No one's brought them to the fore. So I kind of started writing that book by accident really because I, I basically just wanted to read a book on the Beauforts and no one else had done it. So yes it, it did end up being the first proper biography of the Beaufort family.
0: Well that was a very happy accident not only for you but for us as well.
1: I'm glad think think so.
0: It's such a complicated family how in the world did you start researching and writing about them?
1: Are oh, very, very difficult. What was interesting about that book was I went into it with no preconceptions of who they were because the earlier Beauforts, I didn't know who they were myself. You're starting with a very basic outline of, right, in 1372, there's a guy called John Beauford born. John Beauford goes on to become the Earl of Somerset and then he dies. You know, you're starting off with the, the real bare bones of, of who these guys are. Now... I always try and write my books almost as if I'm uh, watching a movie. I like to start each chapter with a gripping intro. And I try to end it on a cliffhanger that takes you into the next chapter. That's just how I, how I construct my work. I'm almost trying to picture it in my mind. If this is a movie or you know or a TV series, how can I get onto the next scene? So I always try and put into each chapter, like where do I want to go with this story? What is my aim here? And once you've done that, when it comes to a big biography like the Beaufort, where you're looking at the families, you start to, you know, jot down all of the principal members of the family. And you know that some of them are going to have a bigger story to tell than the others. And it's a case of just trying to to split up this dynasty into sizable chunks that tell certain stories in every chapter and keeps moving the story on. Now, I was a bit lucky in some respects. I mean, far luckier than the Beauforts. Because that family were only around for 100 years. So I already had a very definitive start and an end. They started in the 1370s as the illegitimate children of John of Gaunt. There were no Beauforts before that. We've got a very clear starting point here. I don't need to waste any time really writing about John of Gaunt because there's plenty of other books out there that tell his story. So I've got my starting point. And the ending point is 1471, 100 years later, when the last of the male Beaufords gets killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury during the Wars of the Roses. Once you know your start and your end, it's just a case then of trying to divvy up the stories in the middle, which was very lucky for me, but as I say, not for the Beaufords. And it's just a case of just trying to work what are the best stories. And some of them will be the famous ones Edmund Beauford, the victim, the target of the very first battle of the Wars of the Roses, 1455. Everyone who studies the Wars of the Roses knows that Edmund Beaufort was a big character in this period. We have the Cardinal of England, Henry Beaufort, who anyone who's familiar with any of Shakespeare's plays will recognise as a, as a Shakespearean villain. You know, so we, we know his story needs to be told. But then we have the smaller stories, which I like to try and bring to light. We have the story of Joan Beaufort, the Countess of Westmoreland. Joan Beauford, we often consider the Beaufords to be a Lancastrian family during the Wars of the Roses. But Joan Beauford was the grandmother of Edward IV and Richard III of the House of York. That's a very interesting dynamic there that no one's really told before. The House of York were also of part Beauford descent. So let's try and bring that story to the fore. Let's try and see where Joan Beauford's life goes. Once you've jotted down what you're looking for, it makes it a lot easier to go through the chronicles, to go through the financial records, and just pinpoint these certain individuals and bring together as much individual research as you can on sticky notes, on pieces of paper, on dozens of Microsoft Word documents littered all over different computers. And then it's a case of just trying to put them all together. Bring the jigsaw together to tell a story. Because that's what it's ultimately about with with kind of popular history that we're writing. There has to be a story there that grips and pulls people in. We can't tell everything, unfortunately. We just don't have the space all the time. But we have to try and get this story across. Hopefully a well-researched and excited story, of course. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the
0: group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type
1: in All Things Tudor, Select the option to join the group and, of course, answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you.
0: You write like a fiction author. That's the way we do things.
1: What I like about doing what I do is that I just don't know if I've got the imagination to really create an entire world myself as a fiction writer does. I think I would struggle myself to create a full fiction book. It's not a skill set I have, personally. (laughs) Again, I just think I'm perhaps a bit too hyperactive and a bit too unfocused to try and keep my characters going where they would need to go. What I like personally about this non-fiction narrative history writing is I can't really get too off track. The world has already been written for me. I just need to try and bring the story to the fore. I think what I do is perfect for myself, but I would love to give fiction a go. Maybe one day, down the line.
0: Maybe someday, but you're doing a great job, whatever you're doing, it definitely works. Well, back to the Beauforts, we all know about Margaret and how she played such a part in her son's life. What do you think about her?
1: Look, I love Margaret Beaufort. Margaret Beaufort's had such a terrible time of it lately. We can accept that there's certain historical characters who have been maligned, Throughout history, I will put cards on the table and accept that Richard III is one of these characters. I don't think he's been as maligned as some of his supporters might want us to believe, but there certainly has been an element of his character, his name, being maligned for several hundred years, chiefly because of a certain William Shakespeare. Now, what's happened in the last 10 years is there's been this really heavy movement of hate. Towards Margaret Beaufort. And it's coming from, from two areas, which is quite interesting but also really frustrating. We have supporters of Richard III. A lot of their campaign to try and unmalign Richard has been to try to find another villain to replace him. And their target has been Margaret Beaufort. So she's getting maligned from this side. From the other side, we have a lot of people who are interested in Tudor history who are reading certain Tudor fiction books that, for some reason, have now taken it upon them to try and portray Margaret Beaufort as being this tough, domineering, religious, fanatic mother-in-law from HAL, none of which can be held up just by a simple study of the historical sources. She's getting it from all sides at the moment, is poor Margaret. What's really frustrating, it's very difficult to try and overturn someone's opinion in this day and age of social media. Social media has given everybody a voice and it seems that many people just dig their heels in when they're given an alternative or a more informed rebuttal of their viewpoint. I mean, this is not just Margaret Beaufort, this is obviously a far wider problem with social media, but it's very frustrating to watch Margaret's character just get defamed Repeatedly, from, from all areas. Because the real Margaret Beauford was an astonishing woman. A woman who was known to be compassionate, to be caring, to be supportive of her own and others. She was a patron of the arts. You know, she was instrumental in setting up some of the key universities and colleges in this country. She was a woman doing incredible things during her time. And she was heavily mourned when she passed. All of her contemporaries mourned her. We have some great records of how they, you know, lamented her passing. And yet, the Margaret that's now coming down to us is a, a potential murderess of some princes in the tower, a horrible mother-in-law, and somebody who had this weird fanaticism that her son would one day become king. All of it is just nonsense. I would just strongly recommend somebody pick up Nicola Tallis's recent book, The Uncrowned Queen, on Margaret Beaufort. There's the work of uh, Michael K. Jones from 1992, My Lady Mother, or The King's Mother, and we have an upcoming biography by Lauren Johnson. I mean, read these books and study the real Margaret Beaufort, not this weird fiction hybrid monster that suddenly surfaced everywhere.
0: Absolutely. And you brought up The Princess in the Tower. Margaret and Elizabeth Woodville actually. Got along, didn't they?
1: I don't, I don't know how far we could say they got along, but they certainly conspired together at this point. 1483, Richard III's on the throne. The rumours are that the princes in the tower have been killed. They've certainly disappeared into the Tower of London, which is under Richard's control. And then you've got these two ladies through a mutual doctor of theirs, a chap called Lewis Calion, a Welsh doctor. He is the conduit between these two women conspiring to bring down Richard III, which worked. We then get to the reign of Henry VII, and obviously there's a lot of powerful women now around the crown. We have Margaret Beaufort, we have Elizabeth Woodfill, we have Elizabeth of York. We still have, in fact, Elizabeth of York's grandmother, Cecily of York, still alive. I understand why this concept of powerful women around the throne has created an almost soap opera reading of history in recent times. There must have been conflict, there must have been envy, there must have been jealousy. Again, we're just assuming that based on our own modern biases and prejudices. The actual sources are, are quite quiet on any real friendship or rivalry between most of these women. We have one interesting quotation in 1497. So this is 12 years into the reign of Henry VII. Well, a visiting Spanish ambassador who was very hostile to Henry VII mentioned that the heavily pregnant Elizabeth of York was angry at Margaret Beaufort. And this is the one quote that has come down to us today to suggest these women must have hated each other. Margaret Beaufort, mother-in-law from Hal. Well, hang on a minute. I mean, Margaret Beaufort has known Elizabeth of York at this point for nearly 20 years. She's been mother-in-law for 12 years. In this particular scenario, Elizabeth of York is heavily pregnant. Margaret Beaufort is in charge of the ordinances and is probably equally stressed by the upcoming birth. How many people have never, ever fallen out with a family member across 20 years? The frustrating fact is that this one occasion that we know about, granted it could be one of a thousand occasions, it could also just be one of one has been immortalised in the records. It's allowed us to portray Margaret Beaufort as being a mother-in-law from hell. And we just don't know that. We have one source. We have no other sources or no other insight into the relationship between these women, other than they all worked to the success of the Tudor dynasty. They all share the same aim on the same ambition. And again, it worked. You know, Henry VII's reign or has ultimately got to be seen as a successful reign.
0: Absolutely. Now, do you believe Henry the Seventh and Elizabeth of York were a love match or was it a dynastic dream come true?
1: I think a dynastic dream come true is probably closer to the truth. I mean, a love match, I suppose, would suggest that as soon as they met, they fell in love and happy ever after. I think they... They came to respect each other and came to love each other. You know, as far as arranged marriages go, this was a very successful marriage. Maybe there's a bit of a misunderstanding in some cultures about arranged marriages. You know, arranged marriages are still in use in some cultures today, and they create some very successful and lasting unions. Perhaps we all want the Hollywood film-type relationship where you meet somebody first time and it's a perfect love match. In this case... Henry and Elizabeth didn't know each other up until he became king. They married as soon as they could. This is something that's very much misunderstood by many people coming to the study of Henry VII. He didn't postpone or delay. He married her the day after he got the papal dispensation to do so, because they were distantly related. Of course, the reason why he married her was political. He needed the support of the Yorkists. He had to marry her for that support, but once they've come together, it's an incredibly successful union. And we have, again, evidence and sources of how successful this was. Henry VII is one of the few medieval kings where we have no records of him having any affairs or taking any mistresses. We all know that his son, Henry VIII, was quite errant in his matrimonial way, shall we say. So was his predecessor, Edward IV. Even Richard III, a king often portrayed as being quite saintly by some of his supporters, had an illegitimate son. We have no records of that for Henry VII. We do have a very touching source that gives us some insight as to what occurred shortly after the death of their eldest son, Prince Arthur. How Henry was completely heartbroken and Elizabeth had to comfort him. And then when, when Elizabeth went back to her chamber, she collapsed. And this time it was Henry who went to comfort her. A year later, Elizabeth dies. Henry is completely heartbroken. And he doesn't leave his chamber for several weeks. He would allow no one to visit him. And it's thereafter that his reign starts to get a lot more difficult for his subjects when it comes to money. So this was as close to perfection as as any royal marriage in English or British history has been. I don't want to speculate as it's out of my time, but many people at the moment in the UK point at the success of Prince Philip and the current Queen's relationship. And as far as I'm aware, you know, Prince Philip in his younger days was a husband who took mistresses. We just don't have that same evidence for Henry VII almost unique in royal history. Does that by itself mean he loved Elizabeth of York more or less? I can't say. It does provide a positive aspect to it, for myself, certainly at least.
0: Yeah, there weren't a lot of positive marriage roles in the Tudor dynasty, were there?
1: No, and I did read recently that somebody was suggesting that perhaps the reason why Henry VIII's marital wars were notorious was... Was he always looking for what his parents had and he just couldn't find it? I mean, that doesn't justify, obviously, any of his behaviour, but it's certainly an interesting topic to consider, I guess.
0: That is an interesting topic and I've never thought about that. So now you've given me a rabbit hole to explore for the rest of the day.
1: (laughs) Well, we do know that Henry VIII himself was also devastated at the death of his mother. He was a child at the time, and he recorded many years later that he was very angry at the person who brought him this hateful news of his mother's death. And there was a famous painting discovered, or rediscovered even, a couple of years ago in the National Library of Wales that shows the deathbed in the background of Elizabeth of York. And on the bed is a small child weeping, and that child is Henry VIII. We have, again, evidence that he was a child who was deeply impacted by the death of his mother. Did that have any effect on him as a man once he grew up? Possibly. I mean, I'm no psychiatrist or anything into psychology, but it certainly makes sense to me just on the surface of it.
0: Well, absolutely. And it's something that should be looked into. It's a very good point. I do want to ask you, in your research, what are 10 things about Henry Tudor that you've learned that absolutely blew your mind? Did you say 10 things? (laughs) Yes, even five. I'm good with five.
1: (laughs) I mean, I mentioned it already earlier, but I love the fact that he sent people into his native Wales to get hold of Welsh mead. I'm a Welshman who loves mead, and I really like this little connection that Henry even once he became king, remembered something as small as mead from his homeland would send people into Wales to get hold of it. I love that. Um, I love I love discovering that he was a gambler. Again, I came to this subject twelve years ago under the belief that Henry the Seventh was a miser, an Ebenezer Scrooge who didn't give up his money to anybody or anyone, and that's not true. The man was a terrible gambler, throwing bad money after good constantly. Oh, good money after bad, even. Just getting rid of his hard-won earnings just by losing gambling. I like this mental image of him losing to his son, the future Henry VIII. You know, I can imagine that that boy would not have been a gracious winner, shall we say.
0: (laughs) Good point.
1: I enjoy learning about Henry VIII's time in exile in Brittany. It's not a subject area that's been very well documented because we just don't have that much documentation ...or sourced material for it... ...so it it is one of those... ...kind of periods that would... ...be fantastic for a fiction writer... ...but I do like the particular story... ...that when he was 19 years old... ...and he was in... ...he was in Brittany... ...the Bretons did a deal with with the Yorkists... ...that they would hand Henry over... ...so that he would be dragged back to England... ...I think if he'd come back to England... ...at that point at 19... ...he may very well have been executed... ...because he was... ...a distant threat... ...to the House of York. The House of York, they did have a background... ...of taking out rivals to their throne. So what does Henry do? Well, he starts to fake an illness. And while he's faking an illness... ...and the guards are trying to get him on the ship... ...some of the locals in a small town called St Malo ...on the North Breton coast... ...they start to harass the English guards. And during this, Henry sneaks away... ...he runs to the nearest church... And he claimed sanctuary. And when the English guards tried to break in the church to get him, the local population defend him. The English guards go back to England empty-handed. Henry has effectively saved his own life at the age of 19 by faking an illness and being a bit, you know, showing a bit of cunning to get away. I love that about him. And he lived, you know, another day. He eventually lived long enough to amass an army to invade and become king. You know, it's the greatest rags to Royal Richard's tale we have in English history, this rise of Henry Tudor from nowhere. Again, not a boring king and definitely not a boring life. I always say, who needs six wives or a Spanish Armada when you're telling the story of Henry Tudor?
0: <laughs> Good point. And then bring them all together and we're entertained for the rest of our lives. I mean, there's something for everyone in this dynasty, isn't there?
1: There really is, isn't there? I often say, you know, people consider me to be a Tudor historian or into the Tudors. I mean, my interest really terminates very quickly after the end of Henry's lifetime, Henry the Seventh. My subject of expertise is the 15th century, so the 1400s, up to 1509. I am really not that knowledgeable on what occurs later in the Tudor reign, the reign of Elizabeth I, Queen Mary. It's not my area, and it just shows how varied studying the Tudors can be. It's a different world within that 100 years. So much in a 118-year reign to delve into. Different personalities, different conflicts, different foods. It's a lifetime of studying, and I suppose, thank God that they happened.
0: Yeah, fashion, architecture, education. There's literally something for everyone. I do want to ask you just an off-the-cuff question. Is there another area of history that you enjoy? Or does this take up most of your time?
1: This takes up all of my time. I mean, I've always been someone who developed many obsessions with certain parts of history. This is the one that stuck around. I did when I was younger, I did have a bit of an obsession with the American Mafia and organised crime, which I probably put down to being a typical lad in his 20s. But that's never really gone away, you know. It is still something that does fascinate me. The Prohibition era, the rise of the American mob in the 1950s, 1960s, the power they had, any connections perhaps to Kennedy assassination right up to to the 1980s and the fall of the modern mafia with John Gotti and so on. So I've always been always kind of loitered around um. My ultimate historical hero is Muhammad Ali. I probably know more about Muhammad Ali than I do about Henry Tudor. So, you know, as time goes on, I guess we can start to consider that history. Time is moving forward and the 1960s and the civil rights movements and Muhammad Ali's role around that is definitely a part of history now. Muhammad Ali books basically dominate my bookshelves if we take away anything to do with Tudor's or the Wars of the Roses. I could probably make a good case for Muhammad Ali be my other real area of interest.
0: I'm just always curious because some people are just totally immersed in the Tudors, the Tudor dynasty, everything that happened. And then some people are like, well, I'm interested in this, yes, but I like this too. So thanks for sharing with us. I appreciate that. And let's get back to your books. Remind us again of your books, please. So my current
1: book that's on sale at the moment is Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, which does what it says on the tin. It's an examination of Henry VII's reign, the struggles he had with multiple rebellions and conspiracies which sought to remove him. You know, we know that Tudors went on to reign under the great Henry VIII and the glorious Elizabeth I, but I don't think people understand how close they came to losing the throne in the first 10 years of that 118-year tenure on the English throne. This is the book that tells you how Henry VII won the crown and then saved the Tudor dynasty. This is a very important book if you are interested at all in any of the Tudor period, because it wouldn't have happened without Henry overcoming the odds again during the start of his reign, which is what this book tells you. And then the House of Beaufort, as we've already explained, that tells the story of how Henry Tudor got to Bosworth in the first place, really, but from his mother's side of the tree. The great Beaufort family, who are the centrepieces in this great Wars of the Roses...
0: And we can find these books at all the usual places?
1: All the usual places. What I always suggest for any overseas listeners, Americans, Canadians, Australians, there is a website called The Book Depository and they ship all books free worldwide from the UK. So that's a very good website to get around any large postage fees. So I would definitely check that out for any listeners.
0: Well, great. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Do you have any books in the works? Can you share any secret information with us?
1: Yeah, I'm currently working on another book. It's almost going to complete what's turning out to be an unofficial Henry VII trilogy. It's called The Son of Prophecy, and it's going to tell the story of Henry VII's background, exactly the same as the House of Beaufort, but from the other side, so the Welsh Tudor's background. So for anyone who's interested in Owen Tudor, his affair with Catherine de Valois, that French queen, the life of Jasper Tudor and Henry, Henry Tudor's early life in Brittany, then this is the book for you. This will complete my Henry VII trilogy.
0: Well, it is the book for me because I am desperate for information on Catherine and I can't find any. So I look very forward to that. And just quickly, can you tell us where to find you on social media, please?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search my name, Nathan Amin, and you will come across me.
0: Well, Nathan, thank you very much. This has just been a d- delightful chat and I'm so glad to have you with us today and you have to come back again soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to chat all things Tudor and all things Bolford.
0: <laughs> well, that fits right in. So have a great day and we will catch y'all later.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at TheDebATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.